in chapter 20, verse 31 in the book of John, uh, the apostle and disciple of Christ tells the reason for this book. And this is what he said in verse, says in verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the, his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's the purpose of this book. And that kind of is where our context uh, will flow this morning. John is writing this book to convince his readers, you and I, that, the, that Jesus is the Son of God and that in Him we can find both eternal and abundant life. This is a fulfilling, a purposeful, an intentional, and a meaningful life. Uh, growing up myself in the South and having spent the last 15 years in the military, I've become familiar with kind of one-liners, colloquialisms. Uh, and, and you've probably heard these phrases before. People say them, and they expect you to agree with them. Yes, that makes sense. And I think we have these in Christian circles too. Maybe one you've heard before is, my life changed, or the most important day of my life was the day I met Jesus. And I think it's interesting that we consider that saying this morning in light of the text we're going to study together. You see, because I think that saying is a bit off. You see, meeting Jesus is one thing. Following Him is another thing altogether. Uh, if you had followed along in the book of John, and really in any of the Gospels, you see Jesus meets a lot of people. Uh, but it's really only those who follow Him that are transformed. And so I'd ask you to evaluate your own life this morning. Have you met Christ? Have you simply experienced Him and the reality that He is the Son of God? Or are you actually following Jesus? I think this is an appropriate question to ask this morning as we're at the start of a new year. We're nine days in, but it's a good question to ask. In your daily life, are you following Christ? Are you, have you decided to come and see who He is, what He's about, and give your life to Him? So with that context, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that You have given us Your Son. Uh, Lord, that You have made it abundantly clear in Your Word that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in Him we can have eternal and abundant life. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would illuminate Your Word to Your people this morning. Lord, would it encourage those who need encouragement. Lord, would it challenge those who need to be challenged. Above all, Lord, would it result in greater worship of Your Son who came to die, that He might rise again to a place of glory where He is seated now, interceding on our behalf, Lord, where He is ruling and reigning. Lord, would we behold the Lamb of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text this morning is divided into two segments. We see the calling of the first three disciples, and then we see the second calling of Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, but before we look at these two accounts of calling, I want us to look at verses 35 and 36. This is where we see a transition. Up until this point, John the Baptist has been preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom being manifested on earth. And he says a profound statement here. Let's read it together in verse 35 and 36. On the next day, John the Baptist again was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked 
at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the second time in less than seven verses that John the Baptist has used this phrase or this title of Jesus. Uh, One theologian refers to this title as the principal office of Christ. And so it's significant for us to consider. And John uses an imperative that's a command with an exclamation point, behold, so that everyone in the midst of him can see and acknowledge the purpose of Christ, the anointed one. He is the Lamb of God. And if we look back at verse 29, the first time he uses this phrase, he expounds upon it and says, who takes away the sin of the world? So I think it's appropriate for us to ask the question, what did this mean to John the Baptist's disciples and what does it mean for us? Could John have even really known that Jesus would die and suffer as a sacrificial lamb? Well, what we know and what John the Baptist would have known is that the Old Testament scriptures, God provided a lamb or required a lamb. We first see this and saw it in our Genesis series in Genesis 22 where God required of Abraham a lamb. And at that point, it was Isaac. And then God provided. In Exodus 12, it was the blood of the lamb at Passover that preserved the lives of the firstborn of the Israelites. In Leviticus 5-7, through it was the blood of a lamb that was necessary for guilt and sin offerings. And you and I must understand today that Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, was the necessary sacrifice for us. He was crushed and slain, yet he is now ruling and reigning. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was led to the slaughter like a lamb. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And finally, Peter reminds us in his first epistle in verses 18 and 19 by saying, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, the lamb of a, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what we see is Christ as a suffering servant. And if we're honest, and probably if, The disciples were honest. That's not a really appealing picture to the world, is it? But this is the picture that we receive from the one who prepared the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist. We get a picture of a lamb being slaughtered for his people. And I think we see two things here that the early disciples saw and realized. And these truths need to be preeminent in our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of others. Each of us is marred by sin. And it will cost us. Every person that has ever lived has accrued a debt to be paid for their sin. And I'm going to tell you something now you may not want to hear. But your heart is deceitfully wicked. The thoughts of your heart are only evil continually. That's not my words. That's what the Bible says about you. That's what God's Word says about mankind and the human condition. We owe Him. And our debt will be paid by the coming wrath of God. This is unless the debt is paid by another. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the one that can pay your debt and mine. Don't you see, it doesn't matter that we've met Jesus, right? It matters have we 
followed him? Have we believed in him unto salvation? Can you relate to these first disciples that when they heard this, left everything to follow this Christ, Messiah? When the disciples heard this, when they saw John the Baptist decrease that Jesus might increase, it says their response was to follow Jesus. That's always the appropriate response when we truly see and behold Christ. And you may be thinking, well, there's no way these disciples understood the theological implications of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Well, I'll say this, neither did you or I. Neither will you or I when we first believe. But I do think it's appropriate for us to consider and understand that unless God's Spirit enables us to see Christ, we will have no hope. You see, the picture of the Lamb we get in the end is a picture of Jesus ruling and reigning. That's what John, the same writer of this book, when he writes, for, writes the book of Revelation, that's the picture he paints. And there's not a single scene in the book of Revelation where this Lamb is not worshipped, where His people are not laying prostrate before Him. And it's easy for the worries of life to bog us down, I think especially today as we consider the sickness going on in our midst. But I think the greatest picture we all need this morning is to behold the Lamb. We need to come and see who Jesus is and what He has done for His people. And that's what John the Baptist is doing in the text. And that's what his, li- his disciples will give their lives to doing. Worshiping and following Jesus while pointing others to Him. So let's look at the first calling of the disciples in verses 37 through 42. So after they heard this statement from John the Baptist, John, the disciple and apostle, writes this, And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which translated means Christ. He brought them to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Verse 37 refers to the first two disciples. And we can discover from verse 30 or verse 40 that one is Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother. And the one that's not mentioned is likely John, the author of this gospel. Up until this point, these fishermen from Galilee had been disciples of John the Baptist. They'd been following John the Baptist. They sat under his teaching. They walked where he walked, slept where he slept. And now, at this point, after acknowledging Christ as the Messiah, they leave John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Now, this Greek word here is interesting for follow. It could simply mean physically walking with Jesus. And it could also mean beginning the process of becoming his disciples. And I think it's appropriate to consider that in the context, it probably means both. That for the rest of their time with Jesus, they're literally walking with him, following him where he goes, while also at this moment committing to spiritually following Jesus. They have come to see, behold the Lamb, and follow Christ. 
I think we have to be careful when we read these gospel narratives. I think sometimes we read the Bible as though it's a fictional story that never happened. We could even read this story so it seems like these fishermen just popped up out of nowhere. And here they are. And they were with John. And the next thing, they're with Jesus. And Jesus pops out of thin air. But I think it's helpful to really consider the context so we understand what's happening. I don't think it was a sudden decision to follow Jesus. These disciples had been sitting under the feet of John. We don't know how long, but we know they knew the Scriptures. Uh, It's also important to note that these five men that we're reading about in our text today would go on to be five of the twelve apostles who were the foundation of the early church, with Christ being the cornerstone. Significant for us to consider this. These men were common men. They were fishermen. They weren't too different from you and I. They had jobs. They had a home. But they were 50 miles away from their home, in Bethsaida, where their home was in Bethsaida. They were south, uh, not too far from Jerusalem. So they had traveled a distance to follow John the Baptist. He was the first prophet that had arisen in nearly 500 years. He'd drawn a crowd. He was so significant and impactful in his teaching that in the earlier parts of this chapter, we see the Pharisees have sent the religious leaders of the day to inquire, John, who are you and why are you baptizing people? Where does your authority come from? And so these men were curious men. They were spiritual men. They wanted to know who was John the Baptist? Why was he preaching? Was his message true? And in the time they'd followed him, he'd built credibility. They would began to trust in him. And again, it's important to consider here the the sacrifice these fishermen had made to travel south. It would be comparable to you and I leaving now and walking up to Stowe. That's how far they had traveled to be with John the Baptist. Again, John the Baptist had been the first prophet in 500 years. They had followed him, and now here he is at this juncture of our text proclaiming that there's one greater than him. And the one greater than him is Jesus, this anointed one, the king that the scriptures spoke of. They had to see it for themselves. John the Baptist had clearly had the power of God on his life. That's what drew them and drew others. And so they had believed that John the Baptist, his words were true. And once they realized and acknowledged for themselves, they wanted to follow Jesus to see if the word that this great prophet had said is indeed true. It's interesting when we look at Jesus' response in verse 38, the first thing he asked them is, what do you seek? And when we read this initially, uh, it's a perplexing question. Here we see Jesus in this question asking them, why are you really here? What is it that you really want from me? And I think what Jesus is doing in this moment is evaluating their hearts. He's reaching deep to see what their intentions are. And I think this is a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning. What is it that you're seeking? Perhaps, why are you even here this morning? Why did you come to church today? What are your motives? What is the purpose? Is this a mere ritual? Are you here for fellowship and friends? Are you here to worship the King? Are you here to follow Christ? I can think back in my early walk when I wasn't yet a Christian, but I was coming and seeing. It was really to appease my mom so that she would leave me alone. I'm going to church. I'm going to a Bible study. 
Maybe that's why you're here today. See, Jesus goes beyond rigid religiosity here, and he gets at the heart of the matter. He wants to know the motives of these disciples. It's, over, it's as though Jesus is examining whether they want something from him or they actually want to know him. It's as though Jesus is asking them, do you want to simply see the power of God manifested on earth? Or do you want to be part of it? Are you here to be an observer? Or are you here to be a participant? I think this is an important question for us all. Do we want to behold Christ? Or do we actually want to be with Christ? This is a humble beginning for these one-day apostles. In a short three-year period, these men would go on to be the building blocks of the church, from fishermen to gospel preachers and apostles. These men would then go on to set the trajectory of the Christian church that stood for 2,000 years and will stand until the end of time. Many of them would go on to be martyred for the glory of this God-man who they met, as the texts say, in Bethany beyond the Jordan. It started at this point on this day with taking one step in the direction to learn more about who Jesus was and what his kingdom was like. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you need to take the step, first step. You need to come and see who the Jesus of this Bible is and what he's like. And I think you'll find he is worthy of your life. He's worthy of worship. When Jesus asked this question, the response of the disciples is somewhat humorous. They don't answer Jesus' question. They answer with a question, which I think is a lot of times what my children like to do. If you ask them if their work's been done or if they've picked up their room, they answer with a question. Well, what's for dinner? That's kind of what the disciples seem to be doing here. They're avoiding Jesus' question a bit. And they ask Jesus, where are you staying? And I think they communicate two things in their response to Jesus. Firstly, we see in the text that they call him rabbi. A literal translation here means my great one, but more commonly it means master or teacher. They acknowledge the authority of Jesus and, to, and submit to him. That's the first thing we see them doing. They see that Jesus has authority. They also here communicate a desire to learn from him and that they recognize that they're lesser than him. They want to be taught. And the next thing they ask him, they ask him, ask him after acknowledging his authority with the question, where are you staying? And in this, I think they're communicating, Jesus, we want to be with you. We want to go with you. They want to be taught and they want to be with him. And I think, again, we find another question for ourselves. Is this our posture to Christ? Do we want to be with him? Do we acknowledge his authority? Do we want to learn from him? I think this is especially important for you saints in the church that have been walking for Christ with Christ for many years. Do you still delight in sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from Him? Or do you think you've learned all there is to know? If you're looking for a New Year's resolution or prayer, I think this is a pretty good one. Praying something like this, Lord, I want to learn from You, and I want to be in Your presence often in this new year. This text convicted me and reminded me that my greatest need every morning and every night is to come to Christ to cling to Christ, to be with Christ. That this is really what my wife, my kids, my coworkers, they need to see. That I'm a man that wants Jesus, needs Jesus, and ultimately is hopeless apart 
from him. When was the last time you dwelled upon this reality that Christ is your only hope? I think that's what the disciples are uncovering in this moment. And Jesus is the Messiah as he is, as he's the Lamb of God, it means he's ultimately the pinnacle of worship. Look at how Jesus responds here in verse 39. He says, Come and you will see. And I think this is an invitation to us all. Christ doesn't turn these fishermen away. He invites them in. The King of glory who's come in the flesh begins His ministry not with the religious elite or with the Roman authorities, but with some humble fishermen from Bethsaida of Galilee. This call is not for the learned, the wise, nor the powerful. This call to come and see and follow is for the humble of heart. This is what Jesus came to do. To manifest the character and kindness of God to a people in bondage to their sin. He's come to save them. Don't you see? We all deserve to be turned away. Not a single one of us in this room deserves or has earned the invitation to come and see. Yet here it is. Jesus coming and showing the incredible mercies of God. And I want you to consider for a moment where you stand in relation to Christ. Have you accepted this invitation? Are you following after Him in His ways? Listen to the invitation to come and know Christ from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55. This is what he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for David. Two verses later, he says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, the invitation of Christ is not one of a harsh rebuke. It's of a gentle Savior inviting us to know Him, to follow Him. Inviting the weary, the heavy laden to cast their burdens upon Him, to give their sins to Him, and receive His righteousness. Jesus is inviting these men, and He invites us to a life filled with joy, a life that offers abundance, and a life that's eternal. And He offers this today. Christian, are you finding satisfaction in Christ? If not, I would exhort you, this year, remember your first love. Cling to Him. Delight yourself in the rich food and joy that He offers. For there is no disappointment for those that call upon Christ in this life or the next. So in response to this invitation, these men follow Jesus. They go to His humble abode and they spend time with Him. This passage tells us that it's about the 10th hour. And if you follow the Roman clock, this could mean that the time is either 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. However, if you follow the Jewish clock, which I think is what John is referring to here, uh, it means that the clock would have started at sunup and gone to sundown. So the tenth hour would have been somewhere around 4 p.m. The text says that these two men, Andrew and John, the writer of this book, 
they stayed with Jesus that day. Uh, This time with Jesus was so impactful for Andrew in particular that after having spent time with Jesus, the first thing he does is he goes to find his family. I have to tell my brother, Simon Peter, I have found the Messiah, the one who the prophets wrote about. And these fishermen had spent enough time with John the Baptist and knew enough of the Scripture to know and anticipate that the promised Messiah was coming. They were not the religious elite or Old Testament scholars of the day, but they knew that there was a promised anointed one from the line of David that would ransom Israel. The response of Andrew to Jesus tells us that his time, in his time with Jesus, he was confident enough to go and tell his brother emphatically, I have found the Messiah. And John gives the name Messiah here, which is the Hebrew name, and in the Greek it's Christ. This means the promised or the anointed one that the prophets of old had proclaimed would come. He not only tells Simon about the Messiah, but he he brings him to Jesus. He says, come, let me show you the one. D.A. Carson, a theologian and New Testament scholar, explains the significance of these actions by stating, Andrew thus becomes the first in a long line of successors who have discovered the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend, brother to brother. In other words, we see here in the text the first example of evangelism, where Jesus has offered Andrew and John to come and see, and now Andrew has gone to find his brother, Simon Peter, to also come and see who is Jesus and what is he about. These fishermen had gone in a 24-hour period from following the first prophet in 500 years to discovering the anointed promised king of Israel. And as a result, they cannot help but, hear, but share the news. And here's what we need to remember again from the, in, the author's intent of this book, why John writes this book. Again, it's to prove to you and I, the reader, that Jesus is the Son of God and that eternal life is found through believing in Him. So evidence of the, of the deity of Jesus, that He is the Son of God, is demonstrated in his encounter with Simon Peter. Upon meeting Simon, Jesus gives him the name Cephas, which is an Aramaic. And as John points out, the name in the Greek is Peter. This, this is the word for stone or rock. In Jesus giving this name to Peter, we see that the Messiah knows both what is in a man and what will become of a, of a man. It proves his deity. He indeed knows all that the Father has revealed to him. John is building the case that Jesus is the Son of God in this passage. Jesus knows that Peter will one day be the building, one of the building blocks of the early church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And at this point, we've read that Jesus has called John, the writer of the book, Andrew, and then his brother, Simon Peter, to come and see who he is and what his kingdom, his kingdom is like. So let's read till the end of the passage and read about the calling of Nathanael and Philip, beginning in verse 43. On the next day, he desired to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said about him, 
Behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, From where do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So verse 43 tells us that Jesus will now make a trek north to Galilee. This would be about a day's journey north. About a good full day's walk to go from Bethany beyond the Jordan where they were in the south up to uh, Galilee. And at this point, John, Andrew, and Peter are in tow. They're walking with Jesus as his first disciples. And we're presupposing a bit here, but I don't think that these men are silently walking on a full day's walk. I imagine that as Jesus is walking with him, they're asking him questions, that he's teaching them, that they're engaging with one another. They are learning more and more that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They're becoming more convinced that he is the Messiah. And when they arrive in Galilee and meet Philip, who Andrew and Peter would have known, the text says they all came from this same small fishing town, Bethsaida, uh, which is on the northern shores of Galilee. They go and find him. Uh, to give you some context here, Bethsaida would have probably been comparable to a small town in Vermont. Right? Everybody would have known everyone. And so they're going to Galilee to find a friend from their town. Now, there, there's something interesting in the Greek here that scholars debate in verse 43. You see, your Bible may say in verse 43 that Jesus led them to Galilee. But that's not what the Greek says here. It simply says, on the next day, he desired to go to Galilee. And I agree with D.A. Carson, and he makes a strong argument here, that the he here is actually probably Andrew that Andrew is the one that wants to take Jesus and the other disciples back to Galilee where he's from. He's so enthralled with the reality of having met the Messiah that he now wants to introduce others to following him. Although Andrew makes this introduction right, to who Philip is, it's Jesus that we see in the text commands Philip to follow. As is previously mentioned, it's from brother to brother, and friend to friend, that the gospel goes forth. Such is the case in this passage, where Philip, then after being called by Jesus, goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And as a quick note, Nathaniel in this text is probably Bartholomew, who we read in Acts, becomes an apostle. So again, here we have the first five disciples who would become five of the apostles. In verse 45, we get insight that these common fishermen knew the Scriptures. Uh, it's related from Philip to Nathaniel. I found the one from the law of Moses to the prophets, the nation of Israel, waiting on the Messiah. These men knew, and they were waiting for this day and this anointed one. And the dialogue is, here is interesting. Philip explains that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, which Nathaniel responds, Nazareth? How could anything good come of Nazareth? This is kind of a similar response when I tell people I live in Barrie. Barrie? The less popular... So there's kind of 
two views here. The first view is that uh, Nathaniel responds this way because coming from Galilee, they looked down on Nazarenes. They thought Nazareth was a trashy town. Uh, maybe not too different from Barry. I don't know. Uh, I'll let the real Vermonters judge on that. Uh, so that's one view of the text, is that he looks down on Nazareth as, as a man coming from Galilee. Uh, the less popular view that also has some credibility is that Nathaniel knew the scriptures well enough to know that the prophecies in the Old Testament don't speak of a Messiah coming from Nazareth. It's interesting, though, that Jesus is ironically fulfilling this prophecy prophesied in Isaiah 53, where the text reads, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been re revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as of one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In being lowly esteemed, coming from the town of Nazareth, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. He's demonstrating, and John the writer is demonstrating, that he is the chosen one of God. And though Philip did not understand all of the intricacies of the prophecy, they are being fulfilled before his eyes. He has tasted and seen the kingdom of God and he is beginning to realize and know that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And as a result, he responds with the words of Jesus from verse 39 when he calls Andrew. Philip tells his friend Nathaniel, come and see. We're seeing a pattern of discipleship for the followers of Christ in this passage. After coming to know the Son of God, the only response is to make him known. Whether it was genuine excitement of Philip or the curiosity of Nathaniel, we're not sure, but verse 47 tells us that Nathaniel then goes and approaches Jesus. And the dialogue of Jesus and Nathaniel reveals both the heart of Nathaniel and the deity of Christ. We would maybe expect Jesus to respond to Nathaniel with some sort of correction or rebuke that Nathaniel doubted that the Messiah could have come from Nazareth. But what we learn from Jesus' response when he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in who there is no deceit, actually reveals to us that Jesus sees Nathanael's motives as pure and honest. He sees that Nathanael genuinely wants to determine if Jesus is the Messiah. There is a willingness in Nathanael, moreover a desire to follow Jesus if he truly is the Messiah. Notice the willingness of all of these men to follow Jesus based on his true testimony. Nathaniel is shocked that Jesus knows him and saw him under the fig tree. And in response, he gives three names of Jesus. He calls him Rabbi, then the Son of God, and lastly, the very King of Israel. Nathaniel's faith in this moment is now established on the clear authority that Jesus has demonstrated to him through supernatural knowledge. And Jesus' response here affirms Nathaniel's faith and then points him to the salvation that comes from him alone. Jesus is not belittling Nathaniel's recently kindled faith. He's affirming it. He affirms and points to even greater things that Nathaniel and really all of the disciples can expect to see. Jesus is showing Nathaniel and the disciples that they're now following him and that the purpose of his coming is that he would provide a way of salvation. In verse 51, 
Jesus uses what is called a double amen. Your Bible here has probably either verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus is emphasizing here the important truth of the statement that follows. He's orienting the disciples, and you and I, to this statement. And what Jesus explains after truly, truly, is that they will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what is Jesus talking about here? What, he's re- what is he referring to? Well, he's actually pointing all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. You may recall where Jacob had a dream and there was a ladder and angels were descending and ascending from heaven. Jesus is saying, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the one that connects heaven to earth. I have descended that I will ascend into glory. He's telling his disciples in this moment that, they, that he is the very Son of God sent to accomplish the work of the Father, which is this, to redeem all of those who believe. He is indeed the Christ, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. I know for certain that for someone in this room, you may have witnessed from afar the glory of God through a local church. You maybe have even met Jesus, heard about Him, but you've yet to come and see, if you're honest. You're not actually following Him. And you must know this, His sheep know His voice and His sheep follow His voice. Today may be the day of salvation for you. And the response to beholding the Lamb of God is to cast aside your own desires, to cast aside your very life. For Jesus teaches to gain your life in Him, you must lose it. No one has ever come to see, no one that has ever come to see and follow Jesus has found themselves disappointed. He says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It's not enough to simply have met Jesus. You must follow Him. For those of us in Christ, I think the exhortation of this text is to commit ourselves to wholeheartedly following Jesus in this new year. To remember your first love. To seek after Him with all your heart. In doing so, inviting others to come and see. With great boldness, tell your family, friends, co-workers, anyone who will listen that you know and are following the King of Israel, that you have been redeemed and ransomed by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And lastly, I think we're exhorted, just like these five men, to do this faith journey together, to walk together arm in arm following Christ. Because if we're honest, we know there are days where our bodies feel weak, where our souls are tired, and where our eyes, rather than looking up heavenward, gaze down at this earth. We need to be reminded this morning that Christ is the Lamb of God. And as He was sacrificed as the Lamb, the Scriptures teach He's also ruling and reigning as the Lamb. So let's come and behold Christ together. Let's give ourselves to worshiping the Lamb, the Rabbi, the Son of God, the King of Israel, Jacob's Ladder, the Messiah, the Christ, the God-Man for us. Let's worship Him in the days ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the obedience of Your Son who came to die. Lord, who had to suffer under Your wrath. Lord, who became the Lamb that was slain for us. Lord, we're thankful for these men in this text that we read today. Humble fishermen 
that would go on to turn the world upside down by following you and giving their lives to bring you glory. Lord, I pray for this church and these people. Lord, would they love Christ more and more in the days ahead. Lord, would they call upon your name. Lord, would they lean into you. And would they plead with those who do not know you to come and see. Lord, would you use this church and other like-minded churches in this area to make much of Christ as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.